The Jerusalem Channel is made possible by viewer support. Thanks for watching. What do all these prominent Bible-believing Christians have in common? Sir Isaac Newton, the 18th century revivalist, Jonathan Edwards, the humanitarian politician, William Wilberforce, the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, Victorian England's Lord Shaftesbury, Lord Arthur Balfour, and Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Well, they all supported the idea of the Jewish people re-establishing the nation of Israel. I want to look at the extraordinary influence three other Christians had in helping to fulfill the founding of this Jewish homeland. Hello, I'm Christine Darig. Christian Zionism is known as a belief among Bible believers that the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948 was indeed a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. In the 20th century, the term Christian Zionism began to be applied to believers who support the aspirations of a Jewish state, superseding the earlier term Christian Restorationism. The belief that Christians should actively support Jews in returning to the land of Israel has circulated in Protestant circles since the time of the Reformation and the days of the Puritans. A 17th century Scottish theologian, Samuel Rutherford, wrote that he longed to see the sight of our elder brethren, the Jews, and the Messiah fall upon each other's necks and kiss each other as prophesied in the Bible. In 1762, Charles Wesley wrote a Zionist hymn which included these lyrics. Rebuilt by his command, Jerusalem shall rise, her temple on Moriah shall stand again and touch the skies. An Israeli historian suggests that evangelical restorationists of the 1840s, in fact, passed this notion of restoration on to Jewish circles. One of these Christian restorationists was an Anglican clergyman, William Henry Heschler. The Reverend Heschler is the first of three Christian visionaries who were strong shadow figures behind Jewish aspirations in the Holy Land. Like many Britons who distinguished themselves in history, Heschler was born in India. He had a German father and an English mother who were sent to India by the Church Missionary Society. Heschler's binational education was instrumental to his close friendship with the visionary behind the State of Israel, Theodore Herzl. For a person born in the 19th century, Heschler was truly a global personality. He traveled more extensively than most persons do in the 21st century. Over his lifetime, he became proficient in many languages and was profoundly influenced by his father's evangelical understanding of the Bible and friendship to the Jewish people. William Heschler developed his own theories and timelines for the second coming of Jesus. And with his combined German and British heritage, he could easily cross cultures. 
Hessler enlisted in the German army during the Franco-Prussian War of 1870, and he served as a clergyman and medical aide. After a season as a missionary in Africa, Hessler was hired to tutor the children of the Grand Duke of Baden. It was through this connection that he developed a relationship with the German Emperor Kaiser Wilhelm II. Heschler always expounded on Restorationist theology to anybody who would listen to him. Later, while traveling through Russia, Heschler was shocked and revolted by the violent pogroms against the Jews. It was in Odessa that he met with Leon Pinkscher, the founder of the Lovers of Zion movement in Russia. Heschler deeply believed that the duty of every Christian is to love and reverence the Jews to whom we are indebted for the Scriptures and the Savior. He believed the Bible doesn't teach that conversion of the Jews was a precondition for their return to the Holy Land. He saw that the Bible clearly teaches that the Jewish people will receive the Lord only after they are settled once again in their ancient land. Well, we all have dreams, don't we? And sometimes God in His sovereignty frustrates our dreams for the bigger plan. Heschler had a personal dream to be appointed as bishop at the Protestant church where I worship in Jerusalem, historic Christ Church inside Jaffa Gate. His heart's desire was to flow in God's divine purposes for the Jewish people and to be located in Jerusalem's old city. But sometimes God gives us our heart's desire in another form. Instead of Christ Church Jerusalem, Heschler was appointed as the chaplain of the British Embassy in Vienna because God intended for him to connect with Israel's visionary, Theodor Herzl, who was a journalist in Vienna. As chaplain of the British Embassy, Heschler was a colorful character. He was forever dreaming of Zion, collecting Bibles and ancient maps of the Middle East. He wrote Zionist hymns and constructed a scale model of the Jewish temple. In his timelines for the second coming of Jesus, Heschler predicted that a major event would occur around 1898 that would lead to the restoration of the Jews. In a market in Vienna in 1896, Hescher came across a new book entitled The Jewish State by Theodore Herzl. And indeed, that book and their meaning were of great prophetic significance. Herzl recorded this significant conversation in his diary, and I'm going to quote it. Herzl wrote, the Reverend William Heschler, chaplain to the British Embassy in Vienna, called on me today, a likable, sensible man with the long gray beard of a prophet. He waxed enthusiastic over my solution for the Jewish people. He too regards my movement as a prophetic crisis, one he foretold two years ago, for he had calculated in accordance with a prophecy dating from the reign of Omar. Omar was one of the most powerful Muslim rulers in history who lived in the year 637. That after 42 prophetical months, that is 1,260 years, Palestine would be restored to the Jews. 
This would make it 1897 to 1898. When he read my book, he immediately hurried to the British ambassador in Vienna and announced, the foreordained movement is here. Heschler declared Herzl's movement to be a biblical one. And Heschler announced ceremoniously, triumphantly to Herzl, we have prepared the ground for you. And he showed Herzl where the new temple must be located. Heschler sang for Herzl a Zionist hymn of his own composition. While it was rather bemusing, yet irresistible to the pragmatic Jewish journalist, and a deep friendship and camaraderie was forged. Herzl desperately needed international legitimacy for his cause. Access to the German royal family could achieve that. Herzl also needed Heschler's confidence as well as his contacts to gain recognition for Zionism by a great European power. By the grace of God, Heschler pulled it off. The Grand Duke of Baden was always fascinated by Heschler's eschatological predictions as well as Herzl's pragmatic proposal to restore the Jews to the Holy Land. The Grand Duke became a lifelong advocate of Herzl and the Zionist cause, and he used his relationship with his nephew, Kaiser Wilhelm II, to support Herzl and Zionism. In 1898, the German Kaiser made a state visit to Jerusalem. It was there that Wilhelm stopped to confer with Herzl about the Zionist vision. It was the first public acknowledgement by a major European power of Herzl and the world Zionist movement. As a result, the movement continued to evolve and grow. Heschler also worked tirelessly to introduce Herzl to the Christian world, speaking at every opportunity or writing to every interested clergyman. In 1897, Herzl convened the First World Zionist Congress in Basel, Switzerland, and his Christian counselor, William Heschler, was invited to the Congress as a non-voting delegate and the first Christian Zionist. In fact, as Herzl's aide and friend, Heschler attended five Zionist Congresses. Heschler was also at Herzl's deathbed and recorded his last words, which were to greet the Holy Land on his behalf. Herzl died at the age of 44 in 1904. Before his death, Herzl had asked the Zionist community to remember and honor Heschler for all he had done to benefit the Jewish people. Well, for many years, he was a prophet without honor, which is the title of a year-long exhibition on Heschler's life currently on display at Christ Church, Jerusalem, the place where, ironically, Heschler had desired to serve. As a true prophet, Heschler had warned of a soon-coming catastrophe that would befall the Jewish people. And tragically, six million European Jews were murdered by the Nazi regime. Yet miraculously, 17 years after Heschler's death, the state of Israel was born in May of 1948. Heschler's grave in a London cemetery remained unmarked. That fact came to the attention of the Jewish American Society for Historic Preservation, and together with British Christians, 
there was a ceremony attended by Christ Church Jerusalem's rector, David Pelagi, who had discovered the unmarked grave. I was privileged, along with other British Christians and Jewish dignitaries, including a representative of the Israeli Knesset, to attend the ceremony in 2011 when an appropriate graveside memorial was erected. The headstone reads, Reverend William Heschler, 1845-1931, a lover of God, his word, and his ancient people, tireless adversary of anti-Semitism, friend and counselor of Theodore Herzl. May his memory be blessed and honored in Israel. Were it not for this visionary Anglican priest, Theodor Herzl could have remained an obscure Austrian writer long forgotten by now. It is Heschler and the Zionist debt to him that is today largely forgotten. Heschler was the quintessential restorationist, a forerunner and embodiment of what it means to be a Bible-believing supporter of the Jewish state. His detractors described him as an eccentric and even a madman. And the same derogatory words have been used to describe a second Christian restorationist, the late Major General Ord Wingate. Wingate was another Englishman born in India who has been honored by the State of Israel perhaps more than any other Christian. A city square has been named after Wingate, a postage stamp was issued with his portrait, and a sports training facility in Netanya, as well as a village near Haifa, are named after him. The Israelis called Ord Wingate Hayyadid, the friend. Israeli historian Michael Oren wrote that Wingate was the father of modern guerrilla warfare. He was, as Oren put it, heroic, a larger-than-life figure to whom the Jewish people owed a deep and enduring debt. The governor of Malta, Sir William Dobby, was his uncle, and his cousin, another Christian Zionist, Colonel Ord Dobby, was a prayer leader when we first lived in Jerusalem and attended Christ Church. Wingate's father's cousin, Sir Reginald Wingate, was Governor General of the Sudan and High Commissioner of Egypt and had a considerable influence on Ord Wingate's career. Born in 1903, Wingate entered the British Army and after fighting experience in the deserts of North Africa, he was considerably toughened for his assignment in the Holy Land as an intelligence officer. Brought up as a conservative evangelical, Wingate viewed the creation of a Jewish state as a religious duty. By then, he was already an exponent of unconventional military thinking and the value of surprise tactics. This Bible was Wingate's fighting manual, and his principles and doctrine were stitched into the very fabric of Israel's army. In the book, The Lion's Gate by Stephen Pressfield, Israeli General Moshe Dayan is quoted as saying that Ord Wingate was one of the most influential men in his life. When Wingate visited Dayan's family home, they would talk late into the night. Wingate mentored Jewish soldiers to outthink and outfight the Arab guerrillas, 
Diane said that Wingett fell in love with us and we fell in love with him. In fact, Diane once said, I'm given far too much credit for founding the fighting ethos of the IDF. This spirit began with Wingett. Inspired by the nighttime exploits of Gideon in the Book of Judges, Wingett proposed the creation of special night squads using British officers and Jews to fight the Arabs. Wingett won over the Jewish agency and the leadership of the pre-state Jewish paramilitary organization called the Haganah, meaning the defense, to pay salaries and other costs of the defense personnel. Wingett personally trained, commanded, and accompanied the special night squads. During reconnaissance in Arab camps, he instructed his men to wear sandals purchased from the local markets so their tracks would be indistinguishable. He believed in going on the offense with daring ambushes. Diane explained, the doctrine of the day was based on walls and guard towers, but Wingett taught us to go outside the wire, to befriend the night, to move fast and strike in ways and in hours and from directions that the enemy least expected. Well, as a conservative Christian, Wingett's thinking was colored by his upbringing in the Plymouth Brethren, a denomination sometimes referred to as Old Testament Christians. Diane claimed that Wingett knew the books of Moses better than any Talmudic scholar, and he believed in them, Diane said, more passionately. And because Wingett knew the Bible, he loved not just the land of Israel, but he loved the idea that contemporary Jews could recreate the Israel of the Bible. And this became his passion. Diane testified, his vision for this land was identical to ours. Well, the biblical judge Gideon was Wingate's mentor right from the pages of the Bible. And because Wingate identified with Gideon, he naturally felt at home at Kibbutz Ein Harod, where Gideon had fought in biblical times and where Gideon's men had stopped to drink at the spring of Harod, Gideon's spring. Wingett always returned to Kibbutz Ein Harad and used it as a military base because he felt the spirit of Gideon there. Copying Gideon, Wingett advocated fighting at night, using stealth, surprise, taking the battle to the enemy with unconventional tactics, timing, and weaponry. So we mustn't forget that his attitudes towards Zionism were heavily influenced by his Plymouth Brethren background and belief in certain end-time doctrines. And because of this, just like today in many cases, Wingett suffered injustice due to political correctness. During his leave in Britain, he spoke publicly in favor of a Jewish state, and this caused his superiors in the British Mandate of Palestine to remove him from his command, despite the fact that he had received a distinguished service order for his campaigns. So in May of 1939, Wingett was transferred to Britain, yet he remained a hero of the Jewish community in the Holy Land, and he was loved by legendary leaders who had trained under him. Moshe Dayan claimed that Wingett taught us everything we know. 
At the outbreak of World War II, Wingett was the commander of an anti-aircraft unit in Britain, and he continued to make proposals for the creation of a Jewish army in the Holy Land. Then, in Ethiopia, he commanded troops in service of Haile Selassie, the emperor of Ethiopia. Still influenced by the biblical judge Gideon, Wingett created the Gideon Force, a special operations executive force composed of British, Sudanese, and Ethiopian soldiers. The Gideon Force was so named because the Gideon of the Bible had defeated a large enemy army with a tiny band of only 300 warriors. Wingett invited a number of veterans of his Haganah Special Night Forces to join him. And with the blessing of Haile Selassie, the group began to operate under Wingett's command in 1941. His brilliant campaign of courage played a notable part in the defeat of the Italians and the restoration of the Emperor's throne. As leader of the British Indian fighters, known as the Chendits, during the Burma campaign of World War II, Wingett led an heroic brigade of guerrilla warfare using tactics of deep jungle penetration that went far behind Japanese lines. But tragically, he was killed in an air crash while fighting the Japanese when he was only 41 years old. In recent years, there have been attempts to besmirch Wingate's reputation because of his biblical loyalty to the Jews. And some even believe his death was no accident. Winston Churchill eulogized Wingate in Parliament as one of the most brilliant and courageous figures of the Second World War, a man of genius who might well have become, Churchill said, also a man of destiny. That is, we may speculate, if he had lived longer to fight with the Israelis in the new Jewish state. Because Wingate never lost a war. And he still had cherished a dream of leading the fight to establish an independent Jewish state in the land of Israel. Events could have been easier for the fledgling Jewish state had Wingate lived. May his memory always be blessed. Now the third Christian Zionist that I want to mention in today's program is Lieutenant Colonel John Henry Patterson, an Irish-born British officer who has been described as the godfather of the Israel Defense Forces. Patterson was born in 1867 and died in 1947, just one year before the establishment of the Jewish state. Patterson is perhaps best known for his book, The Man-Eaters of Savo, about his exploits in East Africa, which inspired, by the way, three Hollywood movie plots. In the First World War, Patterson was the commander of the Jewish Legion, which was the first Jewish fighting force in nearly two millennia. During his time in command of the Jewish Legion of the British Army, Patterson was forced to deal with extensive, ongoing anti-Semitism toward his men from many of his superiors as well as from many of his peers and subordinates. More than once he threatened to resign his commission, 
to bring the inappropriate treatment of his men under scrutiny. And after 35 years of service, he retired from the British Army in 1920 as a lieutenant colonel, the same rank he held when the war started. It's generally accepted that he essentially sacrificed any opportunity for promotion in his efforts to ensure that his men were treated fairly. His last two books are based on his experiences during these times. With the Zionists at Gallipoli was published in 1916, and With the Judeans in the Palestine Campaign was published in 1922. After his military career, Patterson continued to support Zionism. He remained a strong advocate of justice for the Jewish people and a promoter of a Jewish army to fight the Nazis and to stop the Holocaust. He was a member of the Emergency Committee to save the Jewish people of Europe. During the Second World War, he energetically continued to work for the establishment of a Jewish state in the Middle East. Patterson was close friends with many Zionist leaders, including the Jewish Legion co-founder, Zaev Jabotinsky, and an Israeli historian, Dr. Ben-Zion Netanyahu, who was the father of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. According to the Prime Minister, his elder brother, Jonathan Netanyahu, was named after John Patterson. In fact, Patterson attended Jonathan Netanyahu's circumcision and gave the baby a silver cup engraved with the words, To my beloved godson, Yonatan, from Lieutenant Colonel John Henry Patterson. Yonatan Jonathan Netanyahu became the hero of an elite Israeli commando unit, but was tragically killed in 1976 during Operation Antebi in Uganda. Well, one of Patterson's final wishes was to be buried in Israel. In December 2014, with the assistance of the Israeli government and Prime Minister Netanyahu, the remains of Patterson and his wife were reinterred in the Avi Hayal Cemetery in Israel, where also some of the men Patterson commanded are buried. Attending the ceremony were Prime Minister Netanyahu, military and cabinet members of the Israeli government, the British and Irish ambassadors, as well as 350 guests and dignitaries. At that ceremony, Netanyahu referred to Patterson as a great friend of our people, a great champion of Zionism, and a great believer in the Jewish state and the Jewish people. May his memory always be blessed. I'd like to observe that these three men, William Heschler, Ord Wingett, and John Patterson, went against the tide and allowed their Christian upbringing to guide them in helping to found the Jewish state. The question remains in our generation, will we be as brave and farsighted? Thank you for joining me in this edition of Exploits. And I'd like to remind you that all of our videos are available at any time at our website at exploits.tv where you can click online to receive our color magazine exploits based upon Daniel 11.32. That verse declares that the people who know their God will be strong 
and do exploits. In other words, we will take action and accomplish the works of the Lord. Please keep in touch with us through social media and invite your friends to watch. Until next time, always contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem, I'm Christine Darg. Shalom. The Apostle Paul gave us the inspiring imagery of running a good race in life, much as these 3,000 participants in the annual Jerusalem Marathon. Lots of things are happening these days in Israel's ancient capital, and we're here with the Jerusalem Channel to keep you informed of the fast-paced events and news through our daily website updates and regular video reports and biblical teachings. To continue this viewer-supported ministry, we need your help. Please become a part of the Jerusalem Channel by donating. Just click the Donate button on our website to give by credit or debit card. You can also donate by check to our U.S. address or our U.K. post office box. We're here to anticipate that one day soon we'll witness thousands running joyfully through the streets of the Holy City to welcome King Messiah.